John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42 this morning. Well, um, I guess I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to now. My daughter Anna's back. Uh, she's a, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> and Elle's back, as I do. <laughs> and Noah's here. I didn't even see Noah. Hi, Noah. And Noah's back. <laughs> um, well, Anna's a history major, and so we're going to do a little history lesson this morning. In October and November of 1962, I don't know if anybody remember those years, some of you do, uh, for 35 days, it is said that our world came as close as it ever has to worldwide nuclear war. Does anybody remember the event? The Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, at the time, the Soviet Union and the United States were in the face-off of the Cold War. And the United States had missiles in Turkey and in Italy, and so in turn, the Soviets brokered a deal with Fidel Castro to have missiles in Cuba aimed at the United States, uh, you know, just off the Florida coast. Um, as you can imagine, in us living in this time, we hear wars and rumors of wars, nuclear war. There was great fear. It was, um, you know, history records it was one of the closest times that that phone call was made. And it was during that time that a Christmas carol was written. Do you know the one? It was a, a plea for peace. It is, do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? And it was a, a song, it was a hopeful song of a, a newborn child. Uh, the song closes with people, or pray for peace, people everywhere. And the child will, be, will bring goodness and light. This song was a hope for the Christ child as a path to peace in a war-torn, fearful world. Now, Oftentimes, we think of Jesus as the one who's the Prince of Peace, who he is. But John chapter 10, verses 20, chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, is a story of conflict. And in contrast to bringing peace, Christ is actually the center of the conflict and the reason for the conflict. And the conflict is over questions of his identity, which lead to anger and division, and even like departing from one another. Christ, he entered into our world at Christmas, and he is the only hope for true peace. But who Jesus is and his path to life is a battle. A a battle with clear lines, clear sides, and it's in a battle that truly we are all involved in. No matter if you believe in Christ or not, there is a battle going on in hearts and lives. So this morning, our big idea is going to be on the screen. It's in the form of a question. It gets at the identity of Christ and his path to life. Here it is. Do you hear Jesus' divine voice, and will you follow him to life on the other side? And at first you're going to say, life on the other side of what? Well, we're going to get to that. (laughs) But the first part is identity. So hearing his divine voice, this will be verses 22 to 39. And the second part is his path, following him to life on the other side. So let me read, and you can follow along. It'll be John 10, 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Are you, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but... You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never 
perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I told you many, I told, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing the first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word to us this morning. The passage before us, you can see it right, you know, right away. There's, there's a lot of conflict here. And it's a battle over Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And, and, and the claims that Jesus makes here, I don't know how you describe them. They're radical. They're, 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 they're staggering, the claims that he's making. It's shocking, rather. And, and as you read, as, as we read, you probably notice that um, his identity leads to a change of location. We begin in the first part of it in Jerusalem at the temple with Jewish skeptics. And we end outside of Judea on the east side of the Jordan River with many believing. Change of location, skeptics to believing. There's a path from the temple in Jerusalem to outside Judea on the other side of the Jordan in the river, Jordan River. And in the middle, there's a series of questions. And there's a questions regarding Jesus' identity. These questions... And how one hears these questions, what one believes about these questions, these lead to the change in location. Some, when they hear Jesus, they they get angry. They are frustrated. But others, they believe the radical message of Jesus, and they follow him on a path, a path into the wilderness, in spite of this conflict. So in verses 22 through 23, here we see, we find Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. Do you know what the Feast of Dedication is? It's actually the first day of that feast right now. Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Today's Hanukkah, first day of Hanukkah. 18th to the 26th. And this is the time where it's not a biblical feast, but it was a, like, like Passover or the Festival Weeks or Tabernacles, but it was a national celebration of the time where the Jews rededicated the temple after the Maccabeans had you know, destroyed much there. Remember, Stephen's been, Pastor Stephen's been teaching us in Daniel, Daniel about Judas Maccabeus, uh, sorry, about um, Antiochus Epiphanes and how he defiled the temple. We heard they've restored the temple. And that feast celebrates the time when they relighted the candlestick there, and it lasted um, in a, a period of time in which they celebrate this joyful time of rededication. This is where Jesus is at. At this time, this, this, this day, is where Jesus is walking in the center of the Jewish worship in the temple on this day. So Jesus is probably teaching in some of the grounds. It was wintertime. There's a covered area. He's there. And so 
begins this battle over the question of his identity. And so we see in verse 24, the first question. It says, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if we were to read no further than here, we could make the mistake of thinking this is a, a really an honest and authentic question to wanting to know who Jesus is. And it really is a, it's a good question. It's a really good question to ask, is Jesus the Christ, the one to come? Is he the one that we've waited for? The song we said, you know, O come, O come, you know, the long-expected Savior. And if we read no further, um, we could really think, like, oh, they're asking a good question. But that's not really the case here. These people aren't trying to get at who Jesus' identity is. They're trying to attack. If you aren't a Christian, this is a good question to ask, but asking in the right way. Is Jesus really the Christ? And what implication does that have on your life if he truly is the Christ? It has major implications. This is, this is true. Now, they ask him, Jesus, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. They knew if they could have Jesus tell them plainly that he was the Christ, then he would be um, in the place of potentially Rome saying, hey, you're making yourself a king. The Christ to come was a king, kingly figure, and so if he makes the plain claim that he's the Christ and they would try him for treason. He would be taken by Rome. So, Jesus isn't seeking, talking to seekers here. He's talking to the ones who want to prosecute him, who want to trick him. The question of the, the prosecutor who wants to trick someone and the question of the student is a lot different. A student wants to know true answers. The prosecutor wants to convict and bring judgment of guilt on Jesus. We should ask ourselves, what kind of questions do I ask of Jesus? Or, or ask of Jesus' people, other Christians? Are my questions seeking true answers? Or am I seeking to prove a point and make my point? I remember a day um, when I was younger, and uh, I don't know, I still have much pride in my life, but I was proud and I wanted to catch people in their, their answers. And so I asked questions in a Christian group in order to try to prove my point and sort of make them look bad. I don't know if you can, remember, you can recall a time when you did that. I also remember a time where I became desperate and I asked questions that were truly seeking, is Jesus really the Christ? Um, and, and, and when the answer, you realize it's true, it transforms, it changes what you're thinking. Asking questions is important, but asking them the right way is very important. Well, even though here we have men who are trying to prosecute Jesus, look at verse 25, he responds to their question. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So Jesus is not running from their question, but he's not letting them trap him. He's not putting himself at direct odds with the Roman government by saying publicly, you know, plainly, I am the Christ. But that doesn't mean he hasn't shown them all they need to know about him. The problem really isn't a lack of information or proof. It's refusal to believe what Jesus has said about himself. If you look at the book of John, just even up to the chapter 10 right, right here, Jesus said a lot of really shocking, amazing things about himself, revealing himself in amazing ways. One commentator lists 16 different ways in which we're not going to go through all of it, but 16 different statements is about Jesus' radical identity. I'll just list a few to you. He says, I am the one who came from heaven. He says, I will judge all humanity. That's something God does. The scriptures all speak of me. 
Imagine that claim. The scriptures, they all speak of me. That's, that's a radical claim. He says, I will raise myself from the dead. Who can do that? He says, I am the light of the world. These are radical, crazy statements about Jesus himself. He didn't lead them with a lack of information. He wasn't silent about his identity. Far from it. But he was selective in when and how and to whom he revealed himself. No one could have handled it if he had said everything all at once. God designed like a progressive way of unveiling the identity of Jesus, and Jesus followed God's plan for his life in doing so. But it wasn't just his words, he also had works. If, again, if we just lead up to John 10 here, because he's the argument as well, what, what, what has he done so far? He's changed water into wine, he's healed a royal official, he healed a paralytic, paralytic at the pool of Siloam, he fed over 5,000 with a few fish and loaves, he walked on water, and then in this last chapter 9, just right before this, he had healed a man who was born blind. As Ben said, he was blind, blind. He healed that, remember that? So, it's certainly not a lack of information or proof that prevents the Jews from knowing Jesus. It's their unwillingness to believe what he says. And that's really the same way it is today. There's not a lack of information or evidence about the life of Jesus. God has given the scriptures. They are a historic recording, a prophetic recording, a a thorough recovering of the life of Jesus, the gospels, the, the epistles. And they've been scrutinized over and over again, and they, they are shown to be true. God has given a record of the life of Jesus. There's not a lack of information. And it's also not a lack of works. God still works today. He transforms lives. Many of you in this room today are lives that have been transformed by the work of Jesus. His work is in your life, and it's proof of him, proof of his reality. He People across the globe who've been transformed to Jesus, he works today. Both knowledge and information are not the problem. It's a lack of, it's, it's a refusal to believe what Jesus says. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you see here, some hear the words of Jesus um, as an adversary, and they do not believe. They want to entrap him. But others, they hear his words, and they believe. They see him as a caring advocate. Jesus, he calls his sheep. His sheep ears perk up, and they hear, and they follow. The, the, the sheep hear the shepherd. Jesus calls his own sheep. He knows them. Jesus' own believe in him. Those who don't believe are not his. It's not information or evidence that prevents belief prohibits belief. It's knowing and being known by Jesus. Those who do not believe do not have life. But those who believe, who, who, who hear and believe, are gifted. It says here, gifted with eternal life. How long? Life forever, eternal. Life without expiration. Imperishable life. It's not like the fruit that's on my counter with the fruit flies. Imperishable life. Those who do not believe... Uh, do, do not have life. But those who believe have life. But it even gets better. There's a guarantee, an assurance. Verse 28, Jesus' strong hand, it protects those who are in his hand. His grasp is strong, and no one can snatch a believer out of his hand. No adversary may steal them away. How does Paul describe it in Romans chapter 8? I think some of you know this. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, what? 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate his people from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Belief in Jesus as the Christ is found in those who hear and who are his, and they remain despite every imaginable thing against them. No one can snatch them at the Father's hand. If you're a believer, no one can snatch you at the Father's, at at Jesus' hand. But, that's the thing, it gets even better. Jesus continues by explaining his relationship to God the Father, and that implication for um, our relationship, for the believer's life. And it's really quite magnificent. Look at verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Greater than who? Greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Believers are a gift, a present from Father to Son. Those who are Jesus's are given uh, by his Father to the Son. Jesus says that since the Father is greater than all, no one is able to snatch the believers out of the Father's hand. So there's like a double assurance here. The Father's hand, the Son's hand, both in the hand. Whose hand? Well, they're both hands. They're in one. No one can snatch them. It's never, never going to happen. There's double assurance here. Jesus concludes with this marvelous, staggering, shocking phrase. Verse 30, what does it say? I and the Father are one. Quite a statement. Really shocking. That, that, that's, uh, you could see how the Jews at the time would be staggered by this. And it takes a, a gift of God to believe. The Jews, they were seeking to entrap Jesus to tell him tell plainly he's the Christ. But Jesus doesn't fall into their snare. But he does reveal himself. Isn't he revealing himself here? He's revealing himself. He reveals his relationship to the Father and its implication to us as believers. Jesus is the Christ of God. And it is his unity with the Father that secures the believer's life. Secures. Assures. Jesus' divine identity matters that much. That's the assurance that we have. This world, it's a battle. It's a conflict. But for the believers, there's security in the battle. The hand of Christ, the hand of God, that one hand holds the believer. The Father and the Son are one. No one can break such a grasp. So the question was, do you hear the words of Christ? They're the word of God. Do you hear them? Do you hold them to be true? Do you believe that Christ is one with the Father? Do you hold them to be true? Do you know that his word is true and righteous together? Are you believing and following? And this is because, if so, you are a gift from God, from Father to Son. That's That you're a gift. Pretty amazing. You were given eternal life as Christ's own, and you will never be lost, never, united in his hand. And we should be encouraged by that. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. This is great news, assuring news. But remember, in this story, the vast majority who heard this message, they don't believe. They, they don't hear. For them, they actually they hear evil. Or they hear not a divine voice, but one who's even, actually, verse 21 says they thought he was demonic. So what happens? Well, it moves from words to conflict. Look at, look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to... Stone him. Violence. Jesus, faced with this violent though, he doesn't flee away immediately, but he then, they question him, now he questions them. 
he, and he seeks to do something. Even in the face of enemies, enemies he, thinks to, he, he, he desires to convince his adversaries of his true identity so that they might believe. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Simple question. They had sought to trap Jesus, but Jesus tries to expose their illegitimate attack, illegitimate attack and show his union with God as the Christ. He wants to understand and gain, understand the truth and gain life. He asks, are you seeking to stone me for what works that I'm doing? Think of Jesus' life. He gave as the Father gives. He had compassion on people as the Father had compassion. He provided you know, bread and fish as the God provides. He healed the paralytic. He healed the blind man as the Father heals. For which work, Jesus says, of the Father are you seeking to stone me? And obviously they have no answer to this. But, rather Jesus just works to convince them. He, he makes them say audibly now what they were saying he's not saying plainly. He's actually enforcing them to say things that say, well, they actually do know who he is and they just don't like it. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. That's their work that shows they know what he's saying. But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's their words. Both their works, their action, and their words are showing that they actually know what he's saying. The ones who heard Jesus knew he was saying that he was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be God. And you can see it here. They said, you, being a man, make yourself God. This is the second time in the book of John where um, the, the Jews sought to stone Jesus. The other statement he made was John 8.59 where he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Also a claim of divinity. This was also in the temple when they said it. And here he says, the Father and I are one. In both instances, it's the claim that says, Jesus is saying, a claim of divinity. And some today, and I don't know if maybe some of you or have in the past or maybe somebody here today would say, well, Jesus never made a claim of divinity, but the Bible really makes it very clear. He did. Those who would say that are either biased or blind in their thinking. I remember asking the questions before, when I, before I knew the Bible. It's like, did Jesus really say um, that I'm, I'm God? And I would I'd wrestle with that in myself and ask questions, but it's so clear over and over again, here especially, Jesus made a claim of divinity. Now, they would desire to stone Jesus, and that would be right if he wasn't God, because if in the Jewish law, if someone made a claim like that, it would be blasphemy, they should be stoned. But what's the problem with their statement? They said Jesus was, Jesus was not making himself God. But what part did they get right? They got the part right that said, you being a man, yes, he was a man, <laughs> But the second part, they got wrong. Make yourself God. Jesus did not make himself God. He is eternally God. Do you remember John chapter 1? What, what did John say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We behold his glory. In the beginning, always, Jesus has been God. Jesus entered into our world at Christmas as a man, but he has always been God. There is no making about it. 
So now Jesus has now got them to vocalize what they said he wasn't making plainly. So now, how, look at his continued question in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be break, broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? So here Jesus is quoting Psalm 82. Um, Jason read it just a little bit a while ago. We did a corporate scripture reading. In that psalm, um, uh, men are called gods because they sit in the seat of God as judges. God, in the scripture, called men gods because they sat in the seat of judges. Jesus here now asks a question about that scripture to show that his words are not blasphemy. It's really a two-part argument. The first part is it says, we all believe that the scriptures are unbreakable. We can all agree to that. And then we also can agree that the scriptures say men are gods. Psalm 82 says it. Therefore, he says, since I am the consecrated one, the one sentient into the world, how can it be blasphemy for me to say I am the son of God? When I am so much greater than the consecrated one is so much better than those whom the scripture calls gods. God calls gods. Jesus' point is, I'm not blaspheming when I say I'm God. He says, the very scriptures are defending me. So what does Jesus use? Jesus uses the hammer of God's word to try and break the unbelief of the Jews. It really should be encouraging to you and I who are Christians who hold the, the scriptures to know that Jesus took one psalm, Psalm 82, kind of an obscure passage, and he uses that word in saying every part of scripture is true. We can use every part of scripture in our lives. It is the hammer of God's word that changes, that breaks, that uh, stirs belief. It's God's tool. We have that tool. It's been given to us. It should be encouraging to us. Look at verse 37. Jesus continues by moving from his words to his works. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The, the foundation for knowing for following Jesus is to know and understand who he is, to understand his identity. Jesus' last argument here is one that, I mean, we've actually seen a few times in John. He uses it here again. He says, if you don't believe my words, then believe God's word or God's works that show, God speaks by showing his works through me. God's voice is being spoken because you see the works of Jesus. The Jews had seen it. We see just even back in verse 21, they said, how can one who's... um, if someone was demon-possessed, how could they open the eyes of the blind? Well, they can't. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Also, remember back to Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, Jewish leader. He came to Jesus by night. He was wondering if Jesus was the Christ. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you come from God. Why? Because no one can do the things that you do, the signs that you do, unless God is with them. The signs were clear. The works of God were the Father's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And his testimony wasn't to validate Jesus, because Jesus is himself, he's secure himself. He needs no validation. But they are a testimony that those who don't believe may know and understand that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And for us who are Christians, to know and understand, to be assured of these things. That's the work does. Men and women understanding that Jesus is, understanding Jesus' identity of 
being in the Father and the Father and the Son being one is essential to life. They work as one for the salvation of mankind. It is their united purpose. The Father gives the flock. The Son saves the flock. One work. One, two persons, God. They cannot get any closer. Jesus is declaring um, with his words, the, the Father is testifying with works that Jesus is the one to come. Do you hear and do you believe the oneness, the one voice of Father and Son? That is an important question to answer. It is an important question that has implications on your life if you believe that. Because he is unique, unlike no other, worthy to be followed. These Jews here, at least in the majority, uh, still do not hear. And Jesus must, at this time, flee. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. This is also, I think, the third time they sought to arrest him in John. But he escaped from their hands. The Jews would not and could not hear. He reasoned with them. He showed them. But they did not hear and follow. Jesus' identity really matters. How you hear and believe what he says matters. The union of father and son is fundamental to the Christian faith. It is the way that he turns Men from darkness to life. God has come to do so, and he came in the form of a man. He came as Jesus. The song that we sang earlier, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. <laughs> we struggle a little bit. Emmanuel, what does it mean? It means God with us. Prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be called, didn't say his name at the time, would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The prophets foretold it. Jesus has come, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, that is the work that's done to save mankind. It's important that we hear, that you believe. If you don't believe, I encourage you to believe. As the Word says, as the works of the Father show, that Christ is the Son of God. and It's, it's the path to life. So, we're now going to turn to our second but shorter point that has some important implications on those who are you or who followers, what does it mean to follow Jesus, the path that he takes? What is his path? How is it different and so radically different from all other paths? Let me read verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, this John is not the John that wrote the gospel. This is, this is John the Baptist, the one who was foretold by Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40 said, there would be one who would cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist came as the fulfillment of that one. John chapter 1, when we were there, it speaks in detail about John coming and preparing the way in the wilderness. Where did John go, though? He didn't come to Judea or Jerusalem or the temple. Where did he go? He went to the other side of the Jordan. This is what the passage is talking about here. He, he went there, and he called for repentance. He called for repentance from sins and turned to the Lord through baptism and preparation for the coming of the Lord. And as we know, John's message, it wasn't really received kindly by many. He was 
in conflict, like Jesus was in conflict. He was in conflict with the Jewish authorities. He was in conflict with the Roman authorities. And his life was tragically cut short because he was preparing in the way for the Lord. I don't know if you remember the, the story, but the story very much grieved Jesus. Matthew 14 tells us that John's life was lost at an earlier age and he was violently killed. John was on the other side. He wasn't embraced by the majority. His death was unjust. It was a painful expression of the hardness of men's hearts. But in addition to Jesus' mourning over John's life, his life also there was a sense that John's life foreshadowed an even greater life in the life of Jesus. John's ministry foreshadowed Jesus' ministry. John had to go to the other side of the Jordan to do God's work, away from the temple. Jesus here leaves the temple and goes where? To the other side of the Jordan, it says. We began in chapter 10, verse 22. We were in the heart of Israel. We're in Jerusalem. We're at the temple. They're celebrating this feast, Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah again, at the dedication of the temple and of the rededication, the light and the candlestick. It's a proud national event. But we end the story with Jesus leaving that place and going, because of conflict, out across Judea, over the Jordan, into outer regions, away from the Jordan. The same place that John had to go as well. The opening and closing of this story have a purpose and a message for us. The path to life for Jesus and those who follow him is not in the way of the majority. The path is through conflict, but it leads to life. The path is on the other side. It's the way that Jesus does. It is different. It's altogether different than the path of the world. Jesus is the divine Lord who comes as John proclaimed, and, and everything that John said about him was true. What did John say? He says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. All that John said about him is true, but he took a similar path as Jesus. His path to lordship was like John's. It was in conflict, it was in rejection, and it was in death. The message of this story is that those who believe in Jesus are not found in the, the, the heart, the popular place, the temple, the, 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 the place that represents sort of a, a pride at this time. They're found where he goes across the Jordan. And it's there that we see in verse 42 that many believed in him. I, I like that word many. Many believed him. Even though he was not in the majority, many came to him outside Judea in the wilderness. We see the contrast here. The Jews in the temple had received direct testimony, right? They had actually heard Jesus, his words. They had, they had seen signs firsthand. We've talked about those, He's, his works. But they do not believe. They do not believe. They're not persuaded. But those who went across the Jordan, we actually read in this text here, they received secondhand testimony. They said all that John said was true. And John, did he do any mighty works? It says John didn't do any mighty works, but they believed. These people believed. They trusted in who Jesus was. They are his sheep. And like Jesus, they follow an altogether different path on the other side. The way of John, the way of Christ, the Son of God, is across the way. It is a path, it is the path, path of those who follow him. It's a lowly path. 
It's, it's one of, who, of the lowly ones who hear his voice and they come into desolate places. The path is not one of those with pedigree, who are born into a um, particular family. could be at the time Jewish family. Or today we could think of uh, born into a particular Christian family. Or be entitled in a certain way that you have a place in the temple. Or we could say today a place in the church. No, it's those who are lowly who went to him in deserted places. Those who hear and believe in the divine Christ, they know and understand who he is. They leave the way of the world to follow an altogether different path. They hear and follow him to the other side. So, let's consider just this, this path just a little bit more. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. We're, we're getting very close to that. And he will soon suffer death upon the cross for the sins of his people. But Hebrews 13, chapter 1, gives us a, a particular helpful point about this path. If you want to, it's probably a good idea. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let's just do that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. James, Hebrews, then James. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not the right spot. Jonathan, help me out. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Where is that? <laughs> this is where you have humility as a, as a preacher. Going to lowly places. Verse 12, 13, 12. Thank you. There we go. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The way of Christ, even in his crucifixion, was outside the gate. The temple sacrifices were made in the temple and then they were burned outside the gate. The path of Jesus' life, even at the end of his life, is one who goes outside. He his, he was crucified upon the cross outside the temple, outside the city walls. This is where Jesus goes. And then there's a follow-on to this verse, which is important for us. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. The path of Jesus is the same path of his followers. It's a different path. It's one that goes outside. Jesus bore the reproach of our sins upon himself to give life, you as a follower of Christ, your path is to bear the reproach of others, is to help others, is to serve others, is to go to lowly places, is to be in desolate places. His path is a life of suffering and difficulty, and we as Christians take that on. But it's a path that leads to life. It's a path that gives life to others, and that's the path that Jesus takes. It says here in verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. There is life that is brought to you as a follower of Jesus who depart from what the world says a different way and you walk a different path, the one of suffering and difficulty and conflict in order to be a a blessing, an encouragement, a change in those lives. Um, It could be that you... Reach out to someone at your workplace that maybe is 
always being mocked or in a difficult place. Um, it could be that you stand beside someone who really need, needs a hand, someone who's experienced a loss, and you enter into that with them. It's going to those who are in need and helping. This is the path of Christ. Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 5, sort of set apart his kingdom in a different way. You guys know, the, I think, the, the Beatitudes that Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be filled. It's going to those who are hunger and helping. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a different path. Those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are great in the kingdom of God. This is the way, the path of Jesus that is altogether different. And this is the path here. Jesus goes outside the camp, we follow him. His sheep hear his voice and they follow. It's a different way. It's an amazing way. It's the, a way that leads to life. Christ, the very God, become man, came down, follows that path. We get to follow as well. We get to go to the saddle. We get to go to the dis, 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 those who are discounted in life. Maybe, maybe a, a youth that you know who's having a hard time, you get to go to that one and bear with them and be with them. You get to go to the elderly that may be suffering, maybe some sort of um, dementia and being with them. Just We go on a different path. We bear with others. And then finally, I just say this, is that this is also foreshadowing that Jesus goes to the nations, right? He left the temple. He went out into the world in a deeper place. We can go to the nations. It's, it inspires our, our, our missions and our evangelism. This is the path of Christ for all of us. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn to take a different path. And we have a lasting city. A city that's different than the majority. It's unshakable. Its foundation is from God. I hope you hear Jesus' voice. I hope we can follow him together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, help us to, to follow you. May we, may we hear your voice and follow. May we go into places that are outside, um, different than the world, different than just the, the, the main flow. Um, help us to follow you into the way you go to care for others, to reach out, to bear long, to suffer reproach as you have. Help us, Lord. We, we pray as we're in this uh, season of celebrating um, you becoming man, we would rejoice and celebrate just this great gift that we've received, Christ, um, in our lives. Amen.